Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening attained his Master's of Divinity and Master's of Arts degrees in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in 1989. He was ordained to the priesthood that same year and has served at several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington and was named Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI. He has served as pastor of Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in D.C. since 2007, and uh, he rec recently completed the Institute's ICC Sophia Symposium on Moral Theology, which was a, a really a wonderful program. So please join me in welcoming back Monsignor Charles Pope. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself and took upon himself the form of uh, humanity. And being known to be of human estate, it was thus that he humbled himself, immediately accepting even death, death unto, uh, on, the, on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name, so that at Jesus' name every knee must bow in the heavens, on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. This is a, uh, an amazing topic of the glorious uh, coming of Christ in glory, and we, we ask that we'll, we'll have our hearts and minds open to acknowledge the great glory that you've given your son, Jesus. He said uh, in the scriptures that... Uh, you, the Father, judgest no man, but have handed all judgment over to the Son, that the world may revere him. So help us today, then, Lord, to revere your Son, whom, whose name you have exalted above every, every other name. We make all these prayers, then, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, who is Lord forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, I want to say, you know, Deacon mentioned, uh, as he is about to be a priest, um, that we don't leave behind our uh, discipleship or anything as we move into different ranks in the clergy. And I know that personally because when I do the old Latin Mass, a lot of times I'm the celebrant, but a lot of times I step into the deacon role. I put the old, the, the dental stole and the deacon dalmatic because there aren't usually enough permanent deacons uh, that know Latin and can sing, you know, that. So a lot of times uh, I'll, I'll still have that role. Sometimes I'll be subdeacon. But I want to say tonight that um, I do not lose my role of disciple either. I want to say that, uh, to, to, to give a gloss on um, St. Augustine, St. Augustine once said, but I'm going to just make it my own tonight. He said, uh, he says, for you tonight, I, I'm, I'm, for you, I'm your priest. Hmm? He said bishop, but I'm not one of those. But for you, I'm your priest. With you, I am your brother. And I would add, from you, I am your son. Because, especially if you're older, you've helped raise me up in the faith. I know my aunt and uncle are here tonight, and they had a very personal role in that. And, and uh, we have also my, my parents who've gone to God, I pray, and that they're out of purgatory by now. Praise the Lord, I hope. <laughs> but I'm still praying for them. But, but again, um, 
I am from you, your son, and with you, your brother, and for you, your priest. And um, again, all of these are just ways of saying that we interrelate at many levels. And so great, great news for you next week. And I'm, I, I, I was lamenting I was going to try to be here, but then I found out, oops, parish may procession and all that fun stuff. So I got to be back in my parish. But, but um, with you next week, and uh, if I can't be here physically, I'll certainly be praying at that time for you. And um, thank you for accepting the call and praise God for lives of service in the church. But all of us have these different roles, but one body of Christ, all of us members with different roles. So I have a, the clock set at about, I started about 7.15, I got to be done by 8.15. And we got a lot to cover, and there's a couple things that I'm concerned about tonight. Uh, this is a topic that a lot of people have strong feelings and opinions, and likewise, it's a topic that um, um, we bring a lot of preconceived notions uh, about the, the second coming and about the gl- gl- glorious coming of our, our Lord. And um, what I want to try to do tonight, though, is to lay out for you not what we might like it to be or think it should be or what we've heard it's going to be, but what the church actually teaches. And I want to look at two, I want to do this talk in two parts. I want to spend some time with the Catechism, which actually has a lot to say about the second coming of our Lord. And then I want to move to the fathers of the church and uh, some of what they say. And again, these are two very good, solid sources for us. Uh, there's a lot of material out there that's good. Somebody showed me the book, The End, that St. Teresa of Av- I mean, St. Teresa of Lisieux, that was a, one of the best books she'd ever read, read, and that's recommendable. But I want to say, let's always start with the catechism. And I'm going to just say as a disclaimer at the beginning, it isn't as powerful as some of these left-behind movies and, you know, the kind of stuff that moves people to, to make, uh, you know, to sell everything and go sit on a hillside and wait because it's going to be Tuesday of next week. You know, and some of those, some of those um, rather exotic things. And you know, the church's teachings, everybody thinks book of Revelation, book of Revelation, but the church actually draws a lot more from the first and second letter to the Thessalonians, first and second Peter, and so on, uh, and to some degree Corinthians and a few other places, than, than the book of Revelation. You know, the book of Revelation is a, um, has something to say about the end times, but less than you might think. And I have time. I'll, if you ever want me to come back, I'll do a, a discourse on the book of Revelation. Uh, but the book of Revelation was rooted in the first century. It was about something that was going on at that time, and it also applies to us now and certainly will apply at, at the end of the times. But to simply just take the book of Revelation and try to turn it into a movie is not the Catholic Church's approach to the last times. And it's not the Church's approach the glorious second coming of the Lord. There are aspects, yes, but there's much more to be said. With that in mind, your first, the, the first set of notes I want you to look at is that one that says, don't worry about being left behind. <laughs> Have a holy fear <laughs> of being taken up to judgment. <laughs> All right? You know, they're, 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 it's not about being left behind. It's about going to the judgment seat of Christ. Amen? Are you praying with me now, right? Now, this is not going to be one of those topics. Now, you've heard me a lot. If, if, you've come, if you listen regularly, you've heard me a lot on our need to be ready for judgment. People are dismissive of that today. They say, God's just a big old granddad. He won't, he's just going to let everybody in. He's just going to wave them on in. And if he's upset about anybody, the, our blessed mother, just get him in the back door. I mean, <laughs> that is not, that is not, you've heard me, I'm not going to. We've got to be more serious about this, you know, our own judgment. And you've heard me on that before. So tonight, 
we want to emphasize the aspects of glory, the aspects of glory that, that speak to um, uh, this glorious second coming. And our need to be ready, but as I say, um, we want to look at the church teaching, not just uh, what a lot of us have picked up from culture uh, and Protestant sources, all right? So with that in mind, if you would look at that first set of notes, don't worry, but I actually do worry, all right? <laughs> but not worry in the sense of panic, but be urgent, be aware of your need to be ready. I want to be ready in that great getting up morning. I want to be ready to go out with all the saints with a lit candle to meet the Lord rather than horrified and drawing back in fear, okay? Now, go down with me then to the second paragraph there. The Catholic approach to the end times, we call it eschatology in theology, right? Eschatology, the end times, is perhaps less thrilling and provocative. <laughs> It does not generate left-behind movie series or cause people to sell their houses and gather on hillsides waiting for the announced end. It is more methodical, and it seeks to balance a lot of notions that often hold certain truths in tension. Now, one of the signs of orthodoxy is that you are willing to accept that things have to be balanced by other things. Orthodoxy involves balance, holding things in tension. Heresy will not abide tension. It throws it away by picking one thing and throwing away the other. So you're going to see that there are some tensions or some paradoxes that need to be held in tension as we look at some of the church teaching on this, all right? So turn the page, and uh, let's begin to look at some of the catechism texts. Let's just get right into it. Now, another reason I'm a little bit anxious about this talk is that I'm going to be doing more reading than I'm used to doing. I don't I think a miserable talk is for the speaker to just read his talk. La, 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 la. So, you know, I, I, but I had to do a lot of reading tonight because it's important that we go to the sources, all right, and really listen to the church. So these are quotes from the Catechism, and you have the references. This would be the first one. That the Lord's coming is soon and sudden, all right, uh, but we're going to also see uh, that it's suspended. Uh, you, you, this is what I mean by the tension. We want to, on the one hand, hold that the Lord could come any moment now before this talk. I can't promise you the next beat of your heart. Hello? Oh, it happened. <laughs> but on the other hand, the, the sources also teach us that there are some things that, that will have to take place before He comes that may take time. And so the Lord says, be ready. I could come soon when you least expect. And suddenly, the old translation says, on a sudden, on a sudden, I could come. And yet also, that we need to be ready to live and persevere through trials and difficulties. And as you might have heard today in the reading, as St. Paul said, we must undergo many trials to enter the kingdom of God. All right? So, which is it? Soon and sudden? Or after a long time? Yes. <laughs> and that's the, the balance of orthodoxy, the tensions that we're asked to hold, right? Now, at some level, I think you can figure out part of the resolution. There's, a, there's two senses. I'll either go to God, or He's going to come to me, but one or the other, we're, we're going to meet. When I, and I don't get to say when. I mean, I'm planning to get home tonight after this talk, and so are you. I can't promise you, either the next beat of your heart, or that there won't be a terrible car accident. I can't promise that. I just say, stay prayed up, be ready. I always have your bags packed. All right? All right. So let's take a look now at this first quote from the Catechism. And again, these are quotes, these bold texts, soon and sudden, that's my words, but beyond there is the quote from the Catechism. So, our, our church teaches, Since the ascension, 
Christ coming in glory has been imminent. And there's some, by the way, in the version online that you can go to, there are hyperlinks to these texts. You can just click there on that Revelation 22, verse 20, boom, and you'll see, uh, you'll just see the text pop up, all right? So that's the way it works. That's what I mean by a hyperlink. Now, basically, again, and we don't have time to flip back and forth between Bible texts, but the Lord says, yes, I am coming soon, says the Lord. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, that's the, I am coming soon. So, since the ascension of, uh, since the ascension, Christ coming in glory has been imminent, even though it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Again, another quote from Acts there. This eschatological coming could be, in other words, end times, right? This eschatological coming could be accomplished at any moment, even if both it and the final trial that preceded are delayed. It is not for you to know. You are to live as if His coming is soon and sudden, and yet accept the fact that you're going to require perseverance, and there may be a long delay. It seems a delay. If you really want to be reunited with a loved one, it seems long, doesn't it? And frankly, living in this lunatic asylum of our modern culture, and let's be clear, it's a lunatic asylum. We are living in a lunatic asylum. There's a part of me that says, come on, Lord, just call me. Call me home! <laughs> Get me out of here! <laughs> so, I said, well, I, I got to have somebody down there to say a few words, but all right, whatever you want, Lord, but, but Lord, I wouldn't mind coming home sooner rather than later, all right? Uh, but again, I'm not suicidal, don't get me wrong, I didn't say that. I'm just saying that, Lord, it would be all right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just make sure I've been to confession soon, Lord. <laughs> we see there's a set, we're setting a tone of balance. I'm coming soon, see? And yeah, whereas we're going to see as these texts unfold, there are certain things that need to be accomplished before he comes that would seem to take a long time. And well, just to give you a, a, a kind of a preview as we read the text, but for example, that the gospel would go to all the nations. That seems to be one of the boxes that should be checked before he comes again in glory. And likewise, that there's a, a wide-scale conversion of the Jewish people. Uh, and, and we'll see again that there's an antichrist figure or a, um, so, some, some um, you know, lawless one who rises up to mislead all the nations. And some of these things are sort of underway, but they're not finished. And uh, when are they finished? And so you see what I'm saying. Some of these things, although he says, I'm coming soon, he, he also tells us certain things that would need to take place that frankly... Take a long time, see? So you see the balance that's required of us, amen? All right. Now, moving down to the next one. We see soon and sudden is one of the teachings of the Catechism. Secondly, suspended. That the second coming is suspended. So, um, if you would uh, see here another quote from the Catechism, and um, it says, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by, quote, all Israel. And you see the references there. For, quote, a hardening has come upon a part of Israel in their unbelief toward Jesus. Uh, now, St. Peter says that to, to the Jews of Jerusalem after Pentecost, repent, therefore, and turn again, so that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And 
that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for establishing all that God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. That's just a quote from the Kerygma or the sermon there of, of Peter at, uh, right after Pentecost, Acts 3. And St. Paul echoes him, For if the Jews' rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The full inclusion of the Jews... Uh, in the Messiah's salvation, uh, at the, at the wake, uh, at, at, when the full, full number of Gentiles has come in, will enable the people of God to achieve the measure of the full stature of Christ, in which God may be all in all. Now, there's a lot of complicated text there, but it's basically in Romans 11 that Paul sets this out. He says, look, for now God has permitted a hardening to come on the hearts of Israel, so that the gospel, rejected by them, will go out to the nation." And then, once the full number of Gentiles have been filled, suddenly God will turn graces to Israel, and many, many Jews will come to believe, so that, quote, all Israel will be saved. Now, all Israel is a very debated term uh, among Scripture scholars. All Israel, what does it mean? I think, and I'm in the school of thought, that says all Israel means Jews and Gentiles together. We are Israel. In that same chapter, Paul talks about how we, I would imagine most of us here, uh, come from Gen the Gentiles, not from the Jewish people. But presuming that, we are, as St. Paul says, wild olive shoots. Look around us. You're all wild olive shoots. That's what you are. And we've been grafted onto the vine of Israel. And some of the unbelieving branches were pruned away. Now, if they come to faith, they'll be grafted back in. But you see, the Lord didn't get rid of one bride, Israel. Yeah, I'm tired of you, and Mary, get, get him a younger babe and married her. That's not how it worked. God does not do that, right? There is the bride of Christ is Israel. And you and I, as most of us from Gentile origin, have been grafted in to that vine through faith. Then, uh, likewise, some, some Jews who had, did believe, certainly in the first century, many Jews did believe. The majority, sadly, did not. But again, there is going to be as the full number of Gentiles is grafted onto that vine of Israel, the great bride of Christ, or the great bride of God, then when that completes, the, there'll be a great awakening among the Jewish people, and many will come to Christ. All right? And there's a mystery. Paul talks about this as a mystery uh, of iniquity, of a, uh, a mystery of, of, of the hardening of, of Israel. But he sees this advantage that many, this provides time for many of us to get ourselves together and get in uh, before the door is finally closed. Are you praying with me? Yes. So I think that's what all Israel means. Now, some people think that every single Jewish person who's ever been born, just because they're a descendant of Abraham and Sarah, will be in. I think that's, uh, that, first of all, that does not, that just overthrows too many other biblical truths, you know. People don't just get overruled by God. I'm sorry, you, you, you rejected me, but you're in anyway. That is just not God's way. God does respect our final decisions, all right? And he takes into account what we could reasonably know at the judgment and so on. But So I think here, all Israel means the full number of Jews and Gentiles together in what we call uh, Israel, the bride, the great bride of God, all right? Um, so we see, therefore, that this, this is going to take time for the gospel to go to all the nations and for the full number of Gentiles to come in. What is that number? I don't know. Uh, some people say, oh, it's 144,000. No, that's, those, those are the Jewish people. And again, that's just a symbolic number. We don't know. We know that there were a number that nobody could count in addition to the 144,000 before the throne of God. Just 
raising him in heaven. Amen? So, it's going to take time. Now, has the gospel reached every nation? In some sense, sure. I mean, we have telecommunications. Really, is there anybody who can say they never heard of Jesus? Well, there are some, probably, and certainly in Muslim countries and behind some of these communist countries that have limited access. Maybe so. I don't know. I'm not here. To, I don't see into everybody's heart. I do know this. There are about 7 billion people on the planet, and about a billion and a half of them are Christians. That's not as many as you'd want, right? So, I don't know. I just don't know. But that's what I'm saying to you, that although the Lord wants to come soon and suddenly, the idea of the gospel going to all the nations, to the full number of Gentiles, and then a major conversion of the Jews, well, is that underway? Some people say, well, look, Father, Messianic Jews, and there's Messianic Judaism, and there's a lot of that going on in the world. So, yeah, and maybe that's the beginning. Maybe that's the beginning, right? So again, you see what I'm trying to show you is that there are aspects that say soon and very soon, and other aspects that say suspended. Now, that's not the catechism word, that's mine, all right? But it does say, well, actually, it's right there in the text, too. The glorious coming of the Messiah is suspended. That is to say, it's held. It's held. It waits until. And then you see all those things that are said. So let's go on to the next thing. And yet another thing that must take place before the second coming of the Lord is not only that it, uh, we, you know, these things, but there's to be suffering and sedition. Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. Oh, Father, we're there today. Yes? Okay. Amen. I think you're, I think we're, that's a good argument can be made for that. But let's read on. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the, quote, mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception, offering people an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. And that goes on a lot today, right? Oh, come out of that crazy Catholic church. You're divorcing me. don't care about all that stuff. Yeah, we've got another little organization over here that won't look at that. Or, you know, you want to be gray, gay, or transgendered, or whatever, whatever the latest. Come on over here, and we're just going to, you know, just leave that, just leave the truth of the faith, tear out some pages from your Bible, and all will be well. Okay? Now, there's a lot of that today, right? Okay? So, the persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception, offering men and women the apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. And then the supreme religious deception is that of, quote, the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianic figure by which man glorifies himself in God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. Now, the problem with Antichrist is most people, I, I've read another article, I didn't, I didn't bring it uh, tonight, and uh, it's on my, you go to blog.adw.org, I wrote an article on the Antichrist. Really, the problem with the Antichrist is that too many people want to reduce the Antichrist to just one figure. And um, the only once in the New Testament is the word Antichrist ever used in the singular. And even then, John, who does it, sort of corrects himself. He says, the Antichrist has come. Uh, that is to say, there are many Antichrist. So Antichrist are in the plural the one figure, though, that we should look to, which I think a lot of people confuse and call the Antichrist, is what Paul calls the man of lawlessness, the lawless one, all right? That's the one you want to look for, all right? And we'll, we'll, look at, we'll talk about that more in a moment. You see here, first of all, that there is both suffering and sedition. The church must be persecuted, and there must be, sadly, a great falling away from the faith of many 
who give way to this, if you will, this, this falling away, this apostasy, because they don't want to be confronted with sin or their need for repentance, uh, or they don't want to accept the cross in some sense, all right? And there would be a wide-scale falling away. Now, certainly, I think, in our times, we've seen this, right? But if you were to go back to the 16th century, you might also say, wow, this is definitely happening today. But let me show, let's go back to the 16th century for a minute to show you how complicated this can get. During the 16th century, when the Protestant revolt started, um, there, is, uh, there were about two to three million people who walked out of the church in Europe. They went into Lutheranism and, and Calvinism, or we came to call Calvinism and some of these other breakaways. And, but at that very same time, in Mexico, Nine million walked in through Our Lady of Guadalupe. Hello? Right now, in Western, in the West, you know, Northern America and, and uh, Western Europe, huge numbers have fallen away from the faith, and yet Africa is blooming. A 7,000% increase in the last 50 years of Catholics in Africa. Hello? So what's going on? Over, overall, the church in the world is growing in numbers. Now, there's a great falling away in the parts of the world that most of us are familiar with. But you can kind of go to any period in history and say, oh, the, the, the wide-scale falling away of the faith is definitely underway. And see, the problem in interpreting these things is that you have to be careful because we have a very limited perspective, right? Are we really experiencing that now? I think, yes, from our perspective, yes, to, to a large degree. People we know and love have just said, oh, that's silly, foolish Catholic faith. See? Huge numbers aren't going. Some of you who are older than I am, I'm in my mid-50s, I was at the very end of an era that I was born. But people packed into churches. 80-90% of Catholics went to Mass on Sunday. Now we're down to 20-25%. It's pretty grim in places. And we're closing churches, and my gosh, you know. Uh, by the way, I was up in Scranton yesterday. I heard uh, Deacon, uh, soon-to-be father, speaking to us about a priest coming from Scranton. And um, there they had to close half their parishes about seven years ago. You know, a, a 100 of their over 200 parishes were closed. Now, that area is depopulating, and there's a lot of stuff. But, of course, we have churches in the south who are, that are being built and blooming. So the old Bible Belt is becoming Catholic <laughs> by the day. <laughs> You know, so the third largest diocese now is Houston, right? And, and it keeps growing and growing. So, you see, it's hard to really figure this out. If you live in the Northeast, and by the way, I, I was with a thousand men up there on Saturday, uh, preaching up there to them. Good, solid, strong. The church, the church is still alive in Scranton. It's going, it's going well, you see. But they've had to go through a period of where they've had to experience some loss. So I don't know. I, you, you and I will have lots of opinions and debates about issues like these, right? And I just want you to know that it's really up to God to know that's the great apostasy. I would say, however, that there are some things that are uh, troubling for us today, obviously, and we need to be alert and alive to them. Now, it says here that there's also a form of a religious deception. I already uh, talked with you about that. I don't have time to talk about all the aspects of this, but clearly today there is a very pernicious utopianism that people promote that is separate from the faith that says, basically, again, your salvation is somewhere other than Jesus Christ and the church he founded. All right? Now, we therefore see soon and sudden, suspended, suffering and sedition. Number four, secular utopianism is rejected. 
<clears throat> the Antichrist deception already begins to take shape in the world every time the attempt is made to realize within history the hope which can only be realized beyond history through the eschatological judgment, namely of Jesus, right? The church has rejected even modified forms of this falsification of the kingdom under the name of millenarianism, uh, especially the intrinsically perverse political form of secular messianism. Now, in our times, there's a lot of utopianism. And some of you, who, again, who are older than I, remember a time when we really thought, well, we were going to make it all better living through chemistry, and uh, we thought science had the answers, and that's secularism. And uh, in communism, of course, the state will take care of you. The state replaces God. And there's going to, we're going to come up with this perfect society that's perfectly governed, perfectly organized, and we've got it all figured out for you. Sign up. Now, how's that working for us? You know, some of the most awful, awful, awful things are promoted in the idea, with the ideas of utopianism. Communism was the most awful example. We saw terrifying things also with Nazism. All these schemes of we're going to purify and make the world great through some worldly notion or a worldly messiah, the Fuhrer or Stalin or someone's going to make it great for us. And, uh, uh, well, how much bloodshed? You know, it is easily the 20th century, which was probably a utopianism run amok, as no other century ever has been, easily, conservatively, 200 million people were put to death by the state, the utopian state that was going to usher in the great glorious salvation of mankind. I tell you, it is awful, it is ugly. Today, now, I wrote an article on my blog last week, I think, Cardinal Sarah has a, a lot to say about the utopianism of the uh, of, of the you know the the West where they come peddling a whole new way of life come live like we do the only price is you need to contracept and abort your children and by God you're going to follow our system because you poor people in Africa don't got it going on and you just don't know much but we've come to save you and here's the price you will abort your children you will contracept them and you will begin to put your trust in material possessions and in our philosophy of the West. Hmm? It is very, very ugly. It gets uglier and uglier. I sit on the board of Human Life International, and we are constantly fighting UN initiatives, all kinds of in, you know, ways that people are trying to insert themselves into the African church and the African family and destroy it. Now, their goal is not to destroy. They want to set up some utopian secular vision that will take these poor people out of their filthy water and all the terrible things. And I'm not going to tell you Africa is a paradise, but at least their families are intact. And they're not so confused about basic issues. And so I will simply say to you, I'm not here to make a, a long speech on these topics, but be very, very careful because these utopian visions are also a sign of uh, you know, a false sign of end times and false messiahs that Jesus warned about. He said, false messiahs will inevitably arise and mislead many, but not you. Don't you be misled. Do not be misled. It will certainly be the fact that before I come in glory, false messiahs, what we call today utopianism and false philosophies, something other than what I've given you, which is the cross and resurrection, Something else will try to take the place. You will must, and you must resist it. Are you praying with me? All right. 
And then in terms of this catechism section I wanted to look at with you, the second coming follows a final unleashing of evil. Oh, we're definitely there, Father. I know. I, I sort of agree with you. How much crazier can it get, you know? People don't even know what bathroom to go to. That's confused. Are you clear that that's confused, right? All right. Now, again, I don't say that glibly. If people are confused, they need our help and our sympathy, but not our approval. We need to help people. You're confused, obviously. And we need to help you to find the way. Male and female, he made them. Okay, all right. This is not a talk on that. The church will enter the glory of the kingdom only through this final Passover. Where she remember Passover wasn't just about what a great victory the part the the, uh, the 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 they got free and they went through the Red Sea. Do you know how terrifying those events were? Let me ask you a question. If you saw water seventy feet up like a wall, seventy feet up like a wall, and Moses says, "Follow me." <laughs> well, it kind of helps if you got the Egyptians behind you, but you get the idea, right? I mean, you know, it was a terrifying night, right? Terrifying. The church will enter the glory of the kingdom only through the final Passover, where she will follow her Lord in his death and resurrection. The kingdom will be fulfilled then, not by historic triumph of the church through progressive ascendancy, but only by God's victory over the final unleashing of evil, which will cause his bride then to come down from heaven. We heard that reading today in the the Roman rite of the Mass, right? God's triumph over the revolt of evil will take the form of the last judgment, cosmic of evil, of this passing world. All right, now again, a lot of details here that I don't have time to deal with, but notice again, the church must enter, this this second coming will come only after a final unleashing of evil. Now, I don't have time to read all the text to you, but Paul says to the Thessalonians, that the evil one is currently restrained, and you know what's restraining him now. Okay, I guess so, Paul. We must know that. You tell us we know it, we must know it. Um, but at the end, he will be released for a time. You say, you're saying to me the devil's inhibited right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. Now, what's restraining him now, of course, is the grace of God and the, the activity of the church, the preaching of the gospel, the sacraments. I mean, every year we're bringing people to the Lord and to the faith. Don't... Don't become so discouraged. Go to an RCIA thing at your cathedral. I mean, we pack them in at the shrine. Three, four thousand every year entering into the church. And uh, again, maybe it should be bigger. But you see the idea. People are finding their way to Christ. And right now the devil is chained. You say, well, wait till he's unchained. You see, you think it couldn't get worse. Well, you thought that two years ago and it got worse. So, I mean, just you got to trust God in this. Right now, his powers are somewhat restrained. In other words, how could we be gathering in a room like this? But there will come a time when he's, his final fury is unleashed on us, right? And he will come raging through and be released for a time. And it says in the Scripture, both in Revelation and in First Thessalonians, a brief time. Okay? He'll be released. Um, and there will be a difficult period to go through. It's difficult now, but it will be even more difficult right before the second coming. This will help purify. It will help sort out. Uh, it will be the church's final Passover. Now, uh, you see again, here's the danger, and this is a problem for some of us in the room, who are older especially. The kingdom of God will be fulfilled then not by an historic triumph of the church through progressive ascendancy. 
I think a lot of us who grew up in the 50s and 60, early 60s, or even before, remember a church that seemed to be vigorous and strong. If you put up four walls, Catholics would fill it. The church really seemed to be coming in influence. And then John F. Kennedy was elected, and we really thought we'd made it, but we sold our soul at the door to get a lot of that stuff, and we, we've really experienced a lot of collapse. It is not the job or the role of the church really to be the in, in, as it says here in progressive ascendancy, gen generally the Lord says the normal life of the church and the normal life of a Christian is to be under persecution. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, and I've called you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. All right? Now, I'm not saying we should run out and look for persecution. You see the idea, we don't intend to offend, but the, the fact of the matter is that it's rather abnormal for the church to be in this great ascendancy and kind of running the whole show. That is not the normal life of the church. I'm not saying it was sinful or wrong. Europe was falling apart after Rome fell away and the Pope stepped in. They kind of filled the gap and it was a good charitable work. But at the end of the day, that is not the normal condition for the church. The normal condition is that we are going to be hated and persecuted by a world that will not abide the cross will not abide it. Okay? So, uh, therefore, we have to accept that these times in which we are currently living, and we seem to be getting worse, and where persecution is coming closer, is something to expect. Not to like, not to approve of, but to endure, and to stay faithful to the gospel no matter what. Be ready when the Lord shall come. To stand up and say, Lord, I was one of your witnesses. I wash my robes in the blood of the Lamb. I'm holding the martyr's, the, the martyr's palm of victory. And I may not have been bloodily martyred, but I suffered for your name. And Lord, I love you with all my heart. These are glorious times for a Christian too. If you're willing to step up and be counted and hated even by your own children and grandchildren, scorned, ridiculed, mocked, called names, misunderstood, hauled to court, thrown into jail, called intolerant, called all those names. If you are willing, these are glorious times for you. And it is part of the crown of glory that you will wear in heaven that you endured times like these. All right? It's part of the church to pass through that Passover, that crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Christ that the church constantly goes through in order to usher in the kingdom. All right? Okay. All right, now I want to move to a second thing, given the fact that these are the things that lead up to the glorious second coming. Now take your second set of notes, and I've... I'm a little over time. I wanted to be finished about five minutes ago on this section, but let's move through these now. I want to say that um, there are beautiful meditations that the fathers of the church make, and I'm drawing a lot of them from this particular source, and if you never have read it, you ought to. Cardinal Jean Danalieu has a, a book on uh, angel, uh, angel, you probably want to pronounce it angelology. It's generally pronounced angelology, all right? But... No, it was angelology. I mean, angelology. It is the study of the angels. It's a thin little book, and I, I reference it there. I strongly, strongly, strongly recommend to you that you buy a copy. It's all of them, maybe 125, 130 pages. Um, a magnificent little meditation on the angels, their ranks, and some of the things that the fathers teach us, and you will find it inspiring. Uh, you will find it helpful. One of the sections in the book talks about the angels' roles at the second coming and the, and the final judgment of the world. So you see, there's a, there's a lot to recommend this book, all right? Um, buy it, 
put it on your shelf and eventually read it. <laughs> right? By the way, Deacon, I know you've had some uh, teachings here on angelology, but again, this would be a, uh, and there'd probably be somebody better than me to do it, but I'm just saying it's a great book, and if you, uh, it's just a magnificent source. And you'll find it very readable. It's not, you know, written in, you know, highfalutin language that only theologians can understand. It's written for all of us, you know, ordinary folks who have at least an eighth grade education. All right? Good. Now, with that in mind, we want to soberly meditate the beautiful, wonderful, glorious coming of the Lord in glory. So go with me to that set of notes that starts at the top. Come, Lord Jesus. Somebody just say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. And hurry up. <laughs> but give me a minute. <laughs> All right. All right. Okay. So uh, go down there about halfway down the page. Perhaps as a beginning point, we should wonder then what happens to the ministry of our guardian angels when we die. Now, I know that might sound strange. That's not a question I was asking, Father. Uh, but now that you've asked it, I, what does happen to my guardian angel when I die? Even if our souls are in heaven, our bodies are still awaiting the resurrection. Now, ancient Christian tradition maintains that during this time, the angels keep watch over the tombs of the saints. In the Jewish apocalyptic book of the Assumption of Moses, we saw that Joshua saw Moses' soul rising to heaven. However, the epistle of Jude also says that the archangel Michael fiercely disputed with the devil about the body of Moses. Okay? Likewise, in cemetery art, we often see, uh, we often see uh, depictions of angels in cemeteries. All of these things point back to an ancient Christian understanding that angels keep watch over the tombs of the deceased. Now, this leads you to a thousand questions. What about cremation? What about people who are dismembered and eaten by lions and where their bodies are, who knows where their body parts are? And when someone's buried at sea and they become food for fish, and what about, what about, what about? See? And, you know, you're going to think about this in a rather human way, you know. Um, let me suggest to you that the resurrection of the body is not that God's going to go looking, where's the leg? Let's see. I'm around here somewhere. <clears throat> um, okay. <laughs> that, isn't, that isn't the way God raises the body. Look, even our own bodies now are currently broken down models, you know, <laughs> the ones that we're in now. Um, it, it, we have bodies because it, it, it pertains to the human soul to form a body. It is the nature of a human soul to form a body. Now, your body, you don't have exactly the same molecules that you were born with. First of all, you'd still be small. <laughs> but beyond that, <coughs> you, um, you've sloughed off some molecules and cells and... Uh, and so on. Uh, you know, our hair falls, and you know, you get the idea. You know, we, I don't know uh, what, there are certainly certain parts of our body that have been there right from the get-go, but other parts of our body, like skin cells and things, we slough off, and other aspects. So, I hope you can see that even now, our exact molecules, and atoms, and bones, and so on, are constantly being renewed and formed by different material, because it's the nature of a soul to f form a body. And that means as Old cells need to be sloughed off, new souls are, I mean, new cells are, are formed, and, and this is the nature of our soul informing and forming our body. Well, when we rise, our soul will continue, will also then once again form a body. Will it use the identical exact molecules and find the bones and the dust and somehow put them all? No. Well, I don't say no absolutely, but I'm just going to say to you that uh, it's not that, don't be so simplistic about the resurrection of the body that you think God's going to be looking around for your leg or limb or to put it back. You see the idea? It might be completely gone to dust. And this is not beyond God to do, but 
I wouldn't be overly simplistic. So when we say the angels keep watch over the graves of the, of the just, we don't again want to just see that as a, a simple, well, where, where were they when the cemetery was desecrated, Father? And that kind of stuff. But rather, our guardian angels kind of go to a period where they keep watch for us the day when our bodies shall rise. And they look and they long for that day, and they do keep watch over what does remain of our body. All right? They're not stuck there. Angels aren't anywhere. Angels are not somewhere. Angels are pure thought, pure spirit, right? Okay? But you get the idea. Now, um, this then, therefore, though, helps us to set up then for the next stage, which is if you turn the page, I think you've got to turn the page. Of course, the next step in assembling this great judgment is to wake up the dead to assemble everyone before the judgment seat of Christ. And the angels are surely part of this. So you see they're number two, right? Now, if you look up a little bit higher, there's a couple of texts I want to read from. One is from Matthew 24. There will appear, when the, when, when the Son of Man does come, there will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then He, the Lord, the Son of Man, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from all the four winds and from the end, from one end of the heaven to the other. So everyone, tuba mirum spargens sonum perse pulcra regionum cogit omnes ante thronum. A wondrous sound, the trumpet flingeth all through the sepulchres it ringeth and all before the throne it bringeth. So the great trumpet blast goes out and the angels assemble the, the, all of God's people before the throne. Uh, goes on to say from 1 Thessalonians, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the archangels call, and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise. So there's a great summoning on that great getting up morning, as the old spiritual says, the old African-American spiritual, in that great getting up morning, fare you well, fare you well. Oh, preacher, fold your Bible, because the last soul's converted. And fare you well, poor sinner. Fare you well on that great getting up morning. And see, do you see them coffins bursting? Do you see those, the dead is rising? And, you know, there's, there's all these beautiful images in that old, in that great getting up morning, right? And they're all being, the angels are raising up then the bodies and gathering them all now before the throne. See, the angels are doing this. You see? Okay. The second Sibylline book, a Christian work, um, from, from pagan antiquity, but it's a Christian work, okay, so it comes from antiquity, describes the archangels as shattering the gates of death and raising up even the bodies of those who had been drowned in the sea or whom beasts had devoured. So, you see, even they were considering some of these questions, right? St. Ephraim speaks of the angels as waking up the dead, and he says, Then the Lord will appear in the heavens like lightning with unspeakable glory. The angels and the archangels will go on before them like flames of fire with a mighty torrent. And the cherubim will turn their faces and the seraphim will fly, crying out in fear, Arise, you who sleep. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. And then the tombs will be open. People will rise and behold the beauty of the bridegroom. Oh, come on, y'all. Right? Isn't this great stuff? That's why you got to buy that book, right? <laughs> St. Paul says that our bodies will rise, truly our bodies, but gloriously transformed. For the body that rises, he will change our lowly body to conform with his glorified body by the power that enables him also to bring all things into subjection to himself. 
So it will be at the resurrection of the dead that the body that is sown is perishable, but it shall be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. Reverend Deacon, there's another topic, right? St. Thomas said, what will our resurrected bodies be like? There's a whole whole speculation that St. Thomas makes in the Summa on that. So that's another talk for you all to arrange. I'm just giving you your syllabus. (laughs) Now we go to the next stage, number three. Then, of course, comes the judgment. And here, too, the angels execute the judgment. So Matthew 13 describes the angels as separating the wicked from the just. The Son of Man will come and send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all that cause sin and evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire. And their men will weep and gnash their teeth, and the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So you see, the angels will execute the great judgment of God. Matthew 25 describes how he'll make that judgment, right? It's not the only way. Be careful about Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is not a comprehensive list of how the Lord will judge, all right? It only looks at the corporal works of mercy. We see in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them, one from, from one from another, as a sheep separates sheep, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Okay. And you notice again, when I was hungry, you gave me to drink, thirsty, you, I mean, when I was hungry, you gave me to eat, thirsty, you gave me to drink, and so on. I say to you simply be careful, because there's nothing in that passage about Believing in Jesus, which he says is essential for salvation, as all kinds of other sins and other things that might exclude us that aren't listed there, it is not meant to be a comprehensive list. Do not reduce the gospel simply to the social gospel or the corporal works. There are spiritual works, there is a need for repentance, there is a need to come to faith, and so on. There's many other ways, but it's a focal description, okay? Now, St. Cyril of Jerusalem speaks of the angels as leading sinners away, body and soul, in the full sight of the armies of heaven, and they will be unable to escape. But the angels are also uniting to the, uniting the just. So on the one hand, Matthew 13 says, angels lead evildoers away. The Son of Man will send his angels and collect out of his kingdom all who cause others to sin and all evildoers, and he will throw them into the fiery furnace. But on the other hand, uh, they, they will throw them into the fiery furnace. On the other hand, St. Ephraim goes on to describe how the angels lead the elect into paradise. Then the angels will come and gather from all sides and take up the holy and fruitful faithful people into the glory of the clouds above to their meeting place with Christ. Mm, Origen says, speaks of the angels, escorting the blessed to paradise. When we have begun to enter the holy place and pass on to the promised land of heaven, those who are really holy and whose place is in the holy of holies will make their way, supported by the angels, into the tabernacle of God, and they will be carried on angels' shoulders and raised up by their hands. And St. Paul seems to speak to the same thing when he says to the Thessalonians that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Oh, I'm waiting for that day, church. Amen? Are you waiting? Are you excited? The fathers of the church consider the image to imagine the, imagine the joy and the relief of the angels whose long work is finally done. Whew, that was a hard one, man. And getting that guy Charles into the kingdom of heaven was work. <laughs> Get me a beer. <laughs> there is beer in heaven. You know that, right? Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah, somebody say, praise God. 
so again, it says here, um, for again, from 1 Corinthians, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things under Jesus' feet. When it says all things are put into subjection under Him, it is plain that He the Father is accepted who put all things under Him. And when all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son of Man will also subject to Him and put all things under Him, so that God may be everything to everyone. And so number four, and thus having gone forth to execute judgment, Jesus now returns to His Father's right hand in the Holy of Holies. And as He ascends there, He ascends with all the members of His body, body and soul now, Join to him, and he ascends to the throne, as to quote St. Augustus, St. Augustine, Unus Christus, Amen Seipsum, one Christ, loving himself. And although co-equal to his Father in glory and majesty, he is delighted to hand over the kingdom of his body, uh, the church, to the Father, who is, who is as Father, the Principium Deitatis. He is the principle, the, the first principle of the divinity. And so, again, there is this wonderful thing. And therefore, the fathers also um, ponder that the angels will make a same declaration, that they will echo the great cry. And all the fathers of the church quote the angels as singing the following psalm when all the just rise up with Christ into the heavens. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Now who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, remember this, though, as he rises, or he, if you will, after the judgment, he made his first ascension 2,000 some years ago in our time. But in this ascension, he takes us with him, not just in our soul, but in our body. You and I are members of the body of Christ. And where he goes, we go. Now, I have a right hand. I like my right hand. And hopefully, if I go out that door, my right hand goes with me. Amen? It's a member of my body. I'd be in bad shape if it didn't go with me. So, your Father, you're falling to pieces up there. So, you see the idea, this beautiful image of Christ once again ascending, and the angels singing this glorious hymn, and you, as a member of his body, walk into the Holy of Holies with him. See? And that's the beautiful image of Unus Christus Amans Seipsum. At the end of time, there will be one Christ loving himself. Hmm? Again, there's this beautiful image, that the complete unity of the body now accomplished by grace. All the members of his body now with him as one body. He the head, we the members of his body, worshiping the Father forever and ever. Let the church say, Amen. And then, number five, there shall come to pass the transformation of all creation and the fulfillment of for all of its longing for the share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. And again, St. Paul said this. He said, creation is eager, waiting, waiting now in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own accord, but by the will of him who subjected it because of our sins. But the creation itself will be set free from bondage and decay and obtain the glorious freedom of the children of God. And we know now that the whole of creation is groaning in travail together until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves. And we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Now, basically what's going on here is, you see, we are not walking around in a machine. 
We are walking around in a work of God and in a revelation of God. And in a way, St. Paul almost personifies creation by saying, creation, which was subjected to futility. What did God say? Cursed be the ground because of you, Adam. We cursed. Talk about early environmentalism. We, we cursed all of creation somehow by what we did. And the beautiful garden of paradise gave way thorns and thistles and death and dying and suffering, earthquakes, famines, floods, all these things somehow were magnified in creation because of what we did. But Isaiah, looking forward, said there's going to be a day when the lion shall lie down with the lamb and the little child can fall asleep in the nest of a snake. And there's going to be, again, this beautiful peace that will come back to creation that was lost, lost when original sin happened. And likewise, uh, St. Paul then picks up the theme for now all of creation. We hardly think of it this way, but all of creation is groaning and waiting. When will the number of the elect be complete so that we too, we, the created order, can be beautifully recreated and share in the glorious resurrection of all the children of God? When Will all these painful things go away? And then there comes that beautiful end at the book of Revelation. Jesus is seated on the throne, and he says to John, See, I make all things new. And John said, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And the former heavens and the former earth were no more, and the sea was no more. And I saw the beautiful bride of God coming down out of heaven. And again, the one on the throne said to me, See, I make all things new. And so all of creation will be beautifully restored to its original glory that, that it had before, before original sin. And so you see, this isn't just this second coming of Christ in glory. Don't think of the whole world as just being annihilated, but rather restored and reformed to its original glory. Okay? There's a kind of an annihilation in that it looks so beautifully different, but it's that beautiful... He says, I make all things new. You see, he, says, he didn't say, see, I replaced everything. I annihilated that and I gave you something different. He said, see, I make all things new. Now, here comes then, I've got, I got, according to my clock anyway, about two more minutes. So here we go, coming in for landing. <laughs> and here it comes, heaven and earth are united and creation receives its original glory and more besides. And again, I've already read a lot of this to you. Uh, I saw that new heavens, that new earth, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, you go down the ocean and say, Ooh, it's going to be nice to be paradise and get a little tan. And... The ancient people never thought of the sea that way. They were smarter than we are. <laughs> they understood that it's dumb to build on sand. <laughs> it is the definition of foolishness that terrible storms come from the sea. There are monsters out there. The sea was a symbol of chaos to the ancients. How many times would Paul shipwreck, right? Like five times, right? I mean, going to sea was ain't no pleasure cruise, all right? And the beach, hmm, you know, that was a scary place, see? So you didn't build, you didn't get too near it. It was considered to be foolish to hang out too close to the sea and certainly to build on sand. Well, here we are today. <clears throat> but anyway, um, but you see the idea, the sea was no more. All the chaos, the uncertainties, the storms, the monsters, all that the sea represents is gone. It's not like, there won't be an ocean in the new world. Oh, gosh, I like the sea. You know, don't think like that. It's, it's the symbol, all right? 
then Cardinal Daniel Liu beautifully concludes this. On that day, the joyful friends of the bridegroom, the angels, will be complete. Um, uh, the, joy of the, the joy of the friends of, the, of God, namely the angels, will be complete. They have now led to paradise the souls of the just who were entrusted to them. They have kept watch over their mortal remains, but for now, they still await the day in which the bridegroom will come, and they look for his bride, when in all of her heavenly beauty is finally perfect, in order to lead her into the house of his father for the eternal wedding feast. So the angels will have such joy on that day, but for now, they watch and they wait for us, for all to be complete. And then St. Methodius says, Oh, dearly beloved, the angels burn with, they just burn to see the day of your marriage. All the angels of Christ has called from heaven. They will come, O Lord, O word, and they will carry with them mighty gifts in their spotless robes. Oh, what a day the angels will have on that great wedding feast that we heard described today. Then I saw the church, beautiful as a bride, joined to her groom Christ, and they went forever into the glorious wedding chamber of heaven. See, that's what we heard today in the Roman Rite of the Mass. So, simply these last two quotes. First Thessalonians, then, thus, thus shall we always be with the Lord. For now, time of trial, difficulties, something to get through. But thus and then, we shall always be with the Lord. And then, finally, the beautiful end of the book of Revelation. This is how the Bible ends. God's final written word as we, he asks us to go forth and get ready to come home. The spirit and the bride say, come. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And the church replies, And say it with me, Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. The glorious second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be soon, and may we be ready. In that great getting up morning. Fare you well. Fare you well. Oh, fare you well, poor sinner. In that great getting up morning. Fare you well. All right, thank you. Thank you. And I'll leave you with one last thing as we are listening uh, to Monsignor's talk tonight and thinking about the things going on in the world and, you know, the signs of the times and, you know, when will the Lord finally come and, and, and bring um, judgment uh, upon those who deserve it and peace upon those who desire it. Um, and, and I know that that question remains as we see these things going on in society that are so disturbing. But I'll ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. How many invited someone to come to church with them today? Don't raise your hand. And I'd ask those online, how many invited someone to come to church with them today? If you want to make Christ present on earth, there is one very simple way to do that, and that is to give the great gift you have received to others. It is the greatest gift of your life, whether you recognize it or not. I know you do because you came here tonight. It's the greatest gift of my life. We must do everything in our power to drag every single person that we encounter to the fullness of salvation, which can only be found in Jesus Christ. Uh, all right, question and answer. Um, in, the, in the past decade, uh, being coming a prepper has become popular. Should the church, say, um, an example, the religious, be saying to uh, Catholics, you should start prepping 
as far as water and food? I mean, oh, we should yeah. we get, get, be getting into that, or should we be sticking to the script? Yeah, amen. Well, you've answered the question well. Stick to the script. You know, you're not going to, water and food aren't going to help you. <laughs> I mean, when Christ comes in glory. Now, that doesn't mean that in some travails leading up to it. But I, I would say, look, um, we need to trust God in this. And this is not a time to trust any human being starting with ourselves. We're going to have to trust God's grace and mercy. And the, the only one thing to do to get ready is just to say, Lord, I need you. I repent of my sins. Help me, save me, have mercy on me, and keep me. Keep me in your own. Uh, in a nutshell, what's the difference between what we believe uh, in the second coming versus what the like evangelicals or the rapture? What's yeah. the difference? That's, that, that's the nut and the nutshell right there. Uh, there now, again, remember, when we say Protestant, it's like saying human. Or, I mean, there, there's so many versions of Protestantism, but some of them believe in something called rapture theory and basically that somehow the church is going to be caught away before the travails. As you can see, that is absolutely not what we teach. The church is actually present through the trials and shares in the paschal mystery of Christ. The church is always in need of reformations, ecclesia semper reformanda. There's a purification affected in the church, and uh, even among the rapture people, there's pre-trib, post-trib, and mid-tribs, and they're all dividing and fighting each other. So all you do is say, if somebody says, are you into rapture? I said, no. I said, well, you're not, you're not following the Bible. I said, well, let me ask you, are you pre-mid or post-trib? And let them start fighting among each other, and, and then just step back and say, bye. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> no, I'm not being flipped, but... Uh, it is it is a very serious misunderstanding, I think, of Scripture that they're engaged. It's only a 120, maybe 150 years old. You might also, if you want to go further with that study or that question, uh, that my brother did a series on the Book of Revelation that might be helpful for those that are uh, will be watching this. Yes. Okay. Good. I I'm a little confused because I thought we only get to see the face of God when you're out of purgatory. So mm -hmm. when you first die, yeah. you see Christ, but not God. I that I don't understand. No. Well, again, there, there's, a, there's a couple possible answers to this. We're, we're not um, clear exactly. Perhaps just the um, experience of uh, the second coming will instantly purify people still on earth. One could argue that maybe there'll still be some process of purgation for them. You know, and remember, there's also the mystery of time here. You know, what is time after we die? Is there time in purgatory? Is it, how does time there relate to time here? And so on. And there's no sense of any of these things. So all we will say is that um, um, there, there may be, for the faithful who still need some final purifications, a way that God has, but this isn't something that's really revealed or commented on. Um, I've seen a quote. Have you, have you heard of the book, or maybe you've even read well. it? Lord of the World by Monsignor Benson. The um, the you you've heard of it because it's yeah, it, yeah. it's a a novel, but it's, it's really novel. it can be kind of scary. Mm -hmm. yeah. But two of the popes said it was the favorite book, including yeah. Yeah. Pope Francis, the favorite book they've yeah. ever read. There's a lot of really good books on these things, and again, they're novels, and they should be treated as such. Um, they're, they're, they kind of help kind of set the mood a little bit. So you've got The Lord of the World. You've also got uh, Father Elijah. Now this, the sequel's come out, Michael O'Brien's book. Uh, there's a beautiful book out by, uh, I forget, Father, uh, a French priest who did, uh, called, it's called The End, and it's, uh, it's more of a, uh, an academic treatment of these topics. But St. Therese of Lisieux said it was the best book she'd ever read. Uh, so, uh, lots of possibilities. But thank you, yes, it's a good, it's a good suggestion. Yes. Lord of the World by Hugh, Monsignor Hugh Benson. Monsignor Hugh Benson. Yeah, it's been republished recently, and it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good read. 
Monsignor, yeah. can you speak a little bit more about uh, the idea of the resurrection of the body and how exactly <laughs> that happens? Well, not exactly how that happens, but yeah. what, what the whole floating in heaven like an angel versus having a body. What are we going to do with our bodies? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, again, uh, now that's why, as I say, this would be a, a course-length topic, or at least a talk-length topic, I should say. And uh, what will be the qualities of our resurrected body? You know, they're, they're going to have physicality. Uh, because it is our glory. Please remember this. Always, never forget this. It is our glory as human beings to unite two aspects of God's creation as no other creature does. The spiritual and the physical. We do that. That's who we are. Angels and God, the three persons of the Trinity are pure spirit. Animals are physical. They have no you know, spiritual soul. They have a soul as an animating principle, but not a, a spiritual soul. We unite them both. So, in our resurrected glory, and in Jesus' resurrected glory as man, he has a body, and the body is essential and important. However, the body will have qualities that are more obedient to the spirit than currently. And I don't have time to develop all of them, but we, we will see that, for example, Jesus was able to appear and disappear at will, Right now, that doesn't pertain to our physical bodies. But the resurrected body will be so subservient to the will that whatever our will wants, the body will you know, largely obey. And so we'll be able to be places quickly and instantly with a, with a real quick uh, transport and, and things like that. Uh, there will be aspects, again, of our body that um, will be gloriously transformed. And go to my blog if you want a quick answer, a fuller answer, I should say on the qualities of the resurrect, what will our resurrected bodies be like? Maybe I'll republish that this week on the blog, okay? And uh, that's, uh, that's a, I mainly root myself in St. Thomas there. Okay, another question? When you repost that on your blog, would you mind mentioning the Institute of Catholic Culture? That'd be great. I will. Monsignor, thank you very yes. much. All right. <laughs> uh, thank you, Monsignor, uh, for another delightful presentation. Mm -hmm. My takeaway is uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. Be prepared. Yeah. yeah. Pray a lot. Yeah. Pray more. Yeah. <laughs> Say amen. Mm -hmm. But what are our responsibilities when we meet people who are of the world, yeah. uh, and 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 what are mm. what what techniques should we take with us? Yeah, well, I want to say that uh, here too. I think that we um, you you'll find people in different spiritual conditions. And as a priest standing before a congregation on a Sunday, I know that there are some people who need fear-based arguments. Do this or else. That's a fear-based argument. Now, largely in the last 40 or 50 years, a lot of priests sort of poo-pooed that. Oh, that's a fear-based argument. That's a fear-based argument. But, but Jesus did it all the time. He warned about hell and hellfire, where the worm dies not. He warned of the day of judgment, of people not being ready, of being in, cast into the outer darkness. The Lord made use of them. Why should we be any less? He's the great teacher, right? So some people need fear-based arguments. Now, again, going up to a stranger, though, and saying, repent or go to hell, is not... So again, we may need initial... But we're talking with people that we have some relationship with already who are in our care, and at times, warnings. Other times, though, we need to also move beyond that to a greater love, you know, that, and ideally, as we make spiritual progress, we need less fear-based arguments, and we need more arguments based in love. I really love the Lord, and I just don't want to offend Him. Somewhere in between, I think, there's also then, though, we need to always remember our own demeanor. Um, do people see you as joyful? Are you excited about God and what God has done? Or are you grouchy and angry 
and upset and opinionated in just a negative kind of a way, all that cynical, kind of cynical in other words. Or are you joyful, alive? Do you have answers? Are you able to say to some, the Lord's been so good to me, and therefore I'm grieved when I see the condition of the world. So would you please, please, please never forget the joy, the enthusiasm that every Christian should have. Now, I want to tell you, and some, Deacon was kind of kidding with me earlier, but I, I kind of take the roof off, but I get excited and I'm joyful about this stuff, but I learned this. I wasn't raised, I was kind of raised in the tower phrase saint approach to going to Mass. No, I mean, reverence, I don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about reverence here, but there was a kind of a, let's get this thing over with like a flu shot. <laughs> and it wasn't something that we did joyfully, and I'm, it was just the times, you know? But listen, listen, I was kind of raised up in the black community for the 27 years I've been a priest, and they showed me a different way, which is that we can be serious, and I, I, I can tell you I can preach about sin like I can preach nowhere else in my home pulpit. But it's, it's accepted with joy because it's understood that what we're saying is God loves us and He can deliver us from this stuff that's weighing us down, see? So somewhere we got to find, become a joyful Christian. The greatest proof of the resurrection is a, is a joy that people see in you. And if Jesus is risen from the dead, Everything is possible, and I can even get out of my sins, you see? And that's where. So even as we have to sometimes use fear-based and some of the, we have to also have a joy that people just can't dismiss. Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you very Thank you. much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.